It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, I'm Chris Wynn. Welcome to the Roku Report podcast in association with the Sunland Community Soup Kitchen. As we follow up a defeat in the league for the first time since February, following our midweek defeat at Bramall Lane. And our next fixture is another tough one as we travel to Stoke City, where we look for our first win at the Bet365 or the Britannia Stadium or Victoria Ground, if you're as old as I am, (laughs) in just over a decade. Uh, So to help bring us up to speed with all the latest regarding the Potters, we're very pleased to have the company of David Callishaw from the brilliantly named Stoke City podcast, The Wizards of Drivel. Hello, David. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Welcome to the Rotor Report podcast. How are you, Keeper, Matt? I'm very well. Thanks for having us on. So, uh, The Wizards of Drivel. I mean, well, firstly... I mean, where did you where did that name come from? And and secondly, tell us a bit about the podcast in terms of you know how you got going and, and what you're doing now. So the podcast started about five, six years ago, sort of midway through Mark Hughes's time as Stoke manager when we were in the Premier League. Um I'd wanted to do a podcast for a while without kind of any idea how to do one. And if you'd listen to the early episodes, then that very much comes across that <laughs> we didn't know how to do one. But the uh, the name Wizards of Drivel, there was an associated blog that was called Wizards of Dribble, which was, you know, for the Stanley Matthews connection. But Wizards of Drivel was an absolutely superb name that Jason, one of the uh, original podcast hosts, came up with. And we, we've known that's been a really good name for the last five, six years we've done it, because not only do people like yourself when we go another podcast say so but uh Talksport nicked it and used it in a promo once so uh yeah um we're, we're quite proud of that pretty much everyone who does these type of podcasts that pretty much sums us up really isn't it but yeah i mean in terms of the the kind of podcast that you seem to be saying five or six years i mean is it consistently grown are you kind of changing the coverage you're doing are you doing more and more as you go along well i think initially we were kind of trying to be a bit more kind of serious about things like doing kind of like really intense match previews and um, trying to grow the the fan page or the fan account by like, you know, trying to harvest content, harvest clicks. But then we kind of, the more we've done it, we've realised that wasn't really our thing. And especially like considering the last four years, Stoke have been a mid-table championship side and it hasn't been like totally interesting on the pitch for us to talk about. We've just kind of (laughs) gone off and done our own thing. So it's... We will have sort of 10, 20 minutes of serious football discussion. Then we will kind of, wherever the conversation takes us, that will kind of descend to kind of madness. So uh, there was an episode where we beat West Brom and we were trying to 
like work out how many Romeo and Juliet quotes we could get into the episode. Uh, I wrote a detective drama featuring Michael O'Neill as like a sort of film noir detective trying to uh, solve the murder of one of his players. Um, so I think the more bored we are with events on the pitch, we kind of we get a bit more creative with stuff on the podcast. But uh, this season we've kind of split the podcast into the kind of more serious tactics-y stuff with the lads who like to talk about that on a midweek episode and then on a Sunday sort of post-match either rant or praise or just see what on earth happens uh, on a Sunday really. I want to get into the last few boring years that you've just been uh, describing for Stoke so I'm sure we'll mention them again in a minute but I mean just personally for you I mean how far does it go back following Stoke City because people will probably have you know, when they think of Stoke City, they've got different things that pop into their head. Some people, this generation coming through, will think of straight away Stoke in the Premier League. You know, I go back a bit further with the Victoria ground. And, you know, so so how far do you go back with it? So I'm 28 years old. So born in 93, which was a good year for Stoke because they got promoted to the second tier in 93. And I've been going... I just missed the Victoria ground and I started going sort of 99, 2000 when we kind of recently moved to the Britannia. But I'm from near Blackpool originally, so we had a season ticket quite early on, but uh, we're not from the local area, which is why if any Stoke fans are listening, they'll notice I don't have a pottery accent. So we've been going season ticket holders for, God, pushing 20 years now, I think. Um, and every year we seem to have the conversation like, do we really want to get a season ticket again? It's going to be rubbish. Ah, fine, get one anyway. So when I started going, we were in the third tier again under good John Thor Darson was the, the first manager I can properly remember. He uh, bought a load of Icelandic players and uh, it didn't really work because we got into the playoff semi-finals two seasons in a row and then lost in dramatic circumstances both times. But then we went up through the playoffs in his, his third season. And then five days after we got promoted, we sat Gudrun Thordeson and we we appointed Steve Cottrell, who uh, went to you guys to be your assistant manager. And and then we have, like, from there, the first Pulis era, one season between then a second Pulis era. And he's kind of been, been the main figure in the last 20 years of, of Stoke, because not only he... Did he keep us up in the second tier, got us promoted and then established us in the Premier League? So when the Premier League happened, I couldn't really believe that because I'd sort of made my peace quite early on with Stoke as being a third tier, second tier club. And now I'm going to have to make my peace with with that again, it seems. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because you mentioned Steve Cottrell there and that's probably one of the few connections I, I didn't even think about, to be honest. I, it didn't even cross my mind about Steve Cottrell, but because I did wonder what connections would come up, because I think it's a generational thing. But you know, if you could go back to Alan Durban, Paul Bracewell in the early eighties, making the move from Stoke to to Sunderland. Then we appointed Stoke legend Dennis Smith, um, and then you tried to poach him from us when he was doing well with us. And then recently, you know, Dean Whitehead, Danny Collins, Liam Lawrence. I mean, that's just. I couldn't be bothered to list them because there's been so many. But it's funny, isn't it? It's two clubs who do seem to kind of cross paths like that more than most. Yeah, yeah, that is a kind of strange red and white connection. On uh, Dennis Smith, by the way, we met him in a pub in Stone a couple of seasons ago and he's just the nicest bloke you'll ever meet. And what and my, my dad was just kind of beside himself meeting Dennis <laughs> Smith, but an absolute 
a gent Dennis Smith is. Um, yeah, so like sort of around the time we got promoted and sort of had those first seasons in the Premier League under Pulis, it was Roy Delap, Kenwin Jones, Dean Whitehead, Danny Collins, which I'll say through gritted teeth. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure there are more as well. But it, it was just it was kind of mad the uh, uh, amount of players who'd been between the clubs like even now you've got Jack Clark and uh, Danny Bart from us as well so it's just I think more or less possibly once we got into the Premier League we sort of became a similar level club in that we were both either sort of towards the bottom of the Premier League or mid-table and and that sort of lent itself to a bit more kind of moving of players Uh, but yeah you're right there it just it seemed to be a bit of a coincidence really because I can't work out like why players would move from Stoke to Sunderland or Sunderland to Stoke for any other reason other than kind of them being of a similar level I guess yeah and it's funny I was I was trying to I was racking my brains with my old uh, championship manager years and I'm sure the the years you were describing there in the third tier, Graham Kavanagh was with you. Ah, yeah. Back then as well. Forgot, sure yeah, forgot he was at you. Yeah, a really influential player for us, Kavanagh. Yeah, good player. But so I mean, with that time that you start following the club, you know, let's talk. You know, you had the ten successive years of being in the Premier League, which ended in twenty eighteen, and like you said, four seasons in the Championship, and the clubs finished no higher than fourteenth in the table. You've had the likes of Paul Lambert, Gary Rowett, Nathan Jones. And since November 2019, it's, as you mentioned, former Northern Ireland manager Michael O'Neill. I mean, was it that much of a rebuilding job when you came down or have they just made a complete hash of it? I think they've just made a complete hash of it. I mean, the big season that we're still kind of recovering from is that first season down under Gary Rowett. Because what you have in your first season down from the Premier League is a load of parachute payments. And what we did was we completely missed the opportunity to spend that money in any way wisely. So Gary Rowett comes in. like At, the, at that time, Gary Rowett was like, you know, a really seen as being a really, really good appointment. He was seen as being like a, a really good manager for championship level. And you thought Gary Rowett with Stokes budget and some of the players we already had still there, like Jack Butland and Joe Allen were kind of international players and stuff. You thought, right, Stoke kind of made to measure for promotion. And he signs Tom Ince for 10 million quid. He signs James McLean for a little bit under 10 million. He signs Benica Fobe for about 8 million quid. And you know what? At the time, I think we probably thought, oh, that's quite exciting. We thought we probably thought Tom Ince was quite exciting at the time. We probably thought Benica Fobe was quite exciting. But they were garbage. <laughs> or rather, he couldn't really turn them into anything worth shouting about we did go on an eight game unbeaten run but like seven of those were draws and it it was really really kind of negative stodgy football we had Bojan sitting on the bench most games and it got to a stage where we're at a game against Rotherham away 2-0 down we cry out for Bojan to come on Bojan comes on and scores and then Rower in his post-match interviews like well, Roy Delap was good for us five years ago. Why don't they sing for Roy Delap? And once once we get to this stage where we're sniping at the fans, then this kind of uh, it's all going to disintegrate. And I think this is the stage O'Neill is ne- uh, reaching now, actually. But yeah, so we've wasted all our um, parachute payments, which now means we've got to do financial fair play, which means we've got to slowly get all these Premier League hangers-on and mercenaries off our books. And I think, by the look on your face, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Trying to get rid of these massive wages, players you sign for massive transfer fees, Imbula, Atebo, Ndai, Philip Walshide, Kevin Vimmer, 
Oh God, so many just <laughs> awful, awful footballers who just and we had to loan them out. It took them ages to just loan them out in the first place, and we're still getting rid of the last of them now. But yeah, and so Nathan Jones comes in like the up and coming, like bright young thing of of management. He's got his own sort of philosophy. He's going to play a diamond formation. And we have huge squad turnover, you know, signing, signing sort of more proven championship players or up-and-coming championship players. And we think, oh, this might work. It doesn't work. And so he goes after we fail to win our first 10 games of a league season. Then Michael O'Neill comes in. And to be fair, Michael O'Neill has done the best job of any of these managers because he actually kept us up that season. We looked like we were going to join a relegation battle. We sort of, we actually looked quite good at the very start of his reign. We won 4-2 and 5-2 and... It was quite exciting. Lockdown season started promisingly, but sort of fell away. And then there's been huge squad churn. There's been a lot of criticisms about negative football. And we've just plodded around mid-table. And it looks like, based on certainly what I've read about our performance last night and the way we've started this season, that that may well continue, especially if O'Neill's still in charge. So it's yeah. uh, kind of been a five-year-long hangover from which we're still trying to recover. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we could have a kind of a playoff between me and you where we have a competition just named Premier League Mercenaries who's taking loads of money out of our clubs, <laughs> yeah, exactly. to be honest. But that, that'll probably be a different podcast. And I want to come on to, to this season and, and Michael O'Neill specifically in a minute, but... I was having a quick look at the summer business you've done in this preseason. In terms of players coming in, I mean, first glance, it seems like there's some decent additions in there. I think you've got eight overall. Uh, Tariq Fosu, I think, from Brentford, that was the most recent. You've had Dwight Gale, I think, who was probably the one, the name that the eye draws to when you see the list, um, who's familiar to Sunderland fans, um, being just up the road for a while. Um, likes Aidan Flynn, who's released by Cardiff City. So, I mean, what are the fans' kind of feelings about the business that's been done? Uh, I think okay on the whole in terms of our business. There, there's a kind of acceptance that we need to uh, cut our cloth accordingly and we can't spend huge amounts of money on, I don't know. I saw someone tweet about Josh Bowler from Blackpool yesterday. I was like, what planet are you on? There's no way we can afford him. Um, but, yeah, I think... Any striker we sign is going to get the fans sort of excited a bit. Now, I may be about to look like a complete idiot, but all our sort of proper sources, so Pete Smith from the Sentinel and The Athletic are reporting that Liam DeLapp was at the club yesterday for a medical on loan from Man City. Now, that is really, really exciting, not only for the narrative connection with Rory DeLapp, but the the fact that he's seen as a very, very highly rated youngster. So that, that could sort of... Uh, tip our fans over into positivity if such a thing is possible. But yeah, it's been a lot of loans, but my concern now is we play a 3-5-2 with wing-backs and our first choice wing-backs, Harry Clark, who did look quite good on loan Arsenal player, he's injured and now Josh Tymon's injured on the left as well. And so we're kind of wing-backless and that area of the squad is looking very threadbare versus our strikers, which if you add Delap to it, we've got Gale, Jacob Brown, Tyrese Campbell and potentially Liam Delap as well. So we seem probably overstuffed at that end, but nothing on the wing-backs, which in a 3-5-2 is quite an important area of the pitch. So... It's kind of it's mixed feelings. There's certainly Aidan Flint hasn't really impressed so far. He seems a bit slow and cumbersome and sort of like a Danny Bart tribute act, really. Um, Dwight Gale has done a classic thing, which is he, he scored in the first two games for every club he's been at 
comes to Stoke, he hasn't scored in four yet. But yeah, he's clearly a good finisher, so I'm going to give that time and just hope for the best. And the, the rest are kind of unknown quantities, really, like Neil Kilkenny, uh, Liam McCarron, we haven't really seen much of yet. Uh, Tariq Fosu, again, a bit of a unknown quantity in, in that. I think, think he played right wing back last night, but he's potentially more of a winger. So a lot of question marks, but I think... Overall, the business has been quite good, but we just need to see it click now. Yeah. Going back to before a ball was kicked, I mean, we've talked about those those seasons that led up, you know, finishing the bottom halves. I mean, was, was there an expectation that this season Stoke needed to break out of that rut of those bottom half finishes? Was there an expectation that that was going to happen or was there a feeling that it's still a rebuilding job and the club still needs to kind of consolidate where they are in the championship? Uh, a bit of both, to be honest. I think there was a, an ex- a hope rather than an expectation that we would break out of this rut and uh, a hope that we'd play a bit more attacking football and push towards the top half of the table. Like I think any fan who kind of expected playoffs with this squad would have been uh, massively presumptuous, to be honest. Uh, there is still a kind of grudging admission from a lot of fans that what O'Neill has done is he's got rid of huge amounts of deadwood and hangers on and he's brought in a much younger profile of player and he's kind of got a more kind of motivated younger team than the kind of squad of mercenaries we've had in previous seasons but I would say that if we were to finish 14th again I don't think anyone would be all that surprised I think there'd be disappointment but there wouldn't be like you know huge shock and anger at it I think people would kind of be a bit we're just a bit fed up at the moment we're not we're not really angry it's not really sort of a sort of febrile atmosphere nor is it like oh no we're trying our best go on stoke you know up the potters all the rest of it we're just kind of like meh it's a very sort of morose sort of I, I equate it to Everton whenever I see Everton play their fans seem to have this attitude as well it's just we we are what we are, and we, we we're not you know emotional enough to see the positive or the negative really sometimes. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, just getting into it, getting into the story so far. I mean, obviously, a quick glance at looking at opening day defeat at Millwall, win over Blackpool on home soil, and that was followed by a defeat at Huddersfield and a draw at home to Middlesbrough in midweek. It just looks like a mixed bag. But mm. what are the the feelings um, after the first full game? Uh, well, so. We can talk about this in a sec, but I was at your game last night. I was at Bramall Lane. And so I have the Stoke score updates on my phone. And I see that we've got a last-minute equaliser. I think, get in, last-minute equaliser. Oh, that's, you know what, no matter how we've played, you can't not enjoy a last-minute equaliser. And so I do what you should never really do after a game, is go on Twitter, and it's just wall-to-wall. That was abysmal. That was pathetic. That was the worst performance we've ever seen. You know, they've got Michael O'Neill in a sort of Gary Rowett tribute. He's do- He said, well, they cheered when we scored and then a minute later they were booing us off. And, you know, he's reached that kind of sort of passive-aggressive comment towards the fans sort of stage. Uh, there's huge, huge, huge pressure on O'Neill now. Or rather, there's huge kind of toxicity and apathy. I think ap- apathy is the key word in that we're not even really celebrating getting that last minute point. And that is not a great place to be as a club at all, because we just seem to keep shooting ourselves in the foot. Now, Michael O'Neill has been criticised in the past for being negative football-wise and, you know, not really setting teams up to attack teams. Well, I thought we kind of 
have done that this season, except we just keep shooting ourselves in the foot. We can't defend set pieces, so that's why we lost at Millwall, because we can't defend a set piece. And then Huddersfield, we're absolutely battering them, and then we just decide to pass them the ball in the 18-yard box, and you know we, we destroy that game that way. And uh, I think it's more been individual mistakes rather than O'Neill himself, but the, the knives are definitely out for O'Neill now. I think there was a lot of people kind of waiting for us to lose. Now, that seems perhaps horrible to say about your own fans, but I think if we'd have lost yesterday, it would have kind of suited a lot of people's agendas, I guess, than if we'd got that last-minute equaliser. But I, I, I'd, I'd rather like give him the first 10 and judge him after a first nice round number amount of games, but it's certainly it's going to be an uphill battle for him to win fans back after this. Well, I was going to say, actually, I mean, my next thing, I was going to talk about Michael O'Neill and say, well, he's had, you know, three years in November in charge, which is a decent stint. Mm. But like you said, with the turnover of the squad, you know, but and from the outside, just looking at league positions, he's not pulling up any trees. No. But, you know, from what you've just described, it sounds like Michael O'Neill's kind of on borrowed time and it's only a matter of time before kind of he gets the chop, really. Well, certainly... If the fans were in charge of the club, I, I would say so, yeah. But what we have is uh, the Coates family and a sort of technical board who I think have really backed him. And certainly he's got his own backroom staff in. The transfer policy has been sort of in the way he would want it. And he seems to have a really good relationship with uh, the Coates family who have never been prone to sacking managers in the past. I think both Pulis and Hughes, they sacked very, very reluctantly. Uh, And I think even Nathan Jones perhaps got more time than some managers would get as well. So he may have quite a bit more time purely because I don't think the club want to do the like tear it up and start again thing, which I get. But you see other examples that, you know, might be a bad example, but like Watford, who can sort of sack a manager every week and still sort of generally it works out for them. And then you get managers who can kind of, cling around too long as certainly Mark Hughes did I don't know what the board are thinking at the moment I guess unless the fans really vote with their feet and stop coming and we we lose a lot of revenue then I think they're content with being mid-table I don't think they're really that bothered if we don't challenge for the playoffs as long as we can sort of make our money back and sort of not be spending too much money as long as we don't go down I think I don't think the board are really sort of that keen to swing the axe yeah yeah and I mean I mean just on O'Neill as well because obviously you know you go back to the days of Tony Pulis and you know it doesn't matter whether you agreed or disagreed you know how he did things but there was a definite identity and a style that the club had you you, you associated with Stoke and said they are this and you knew mm. exactly what they were I mean it does it just feel that at the moment you haven't got an identity you know whether that's the, the style of play what Pulis did or nice football, there's just kind of, it's just trying to go from one whim to the next. Yeah, so yeah, that that criticism has been levelled at him certainly in the past. Now, it's funny with that word identity because like only teams that win seem to have an identity. If you're losing, you don't really have an identity. You might have a certain <laughs> style of play, but you might get battered every week and then you'll be accused of not having an identity. I think he's he's been trying to play on the on the floor a lot more and he's trying to use wing backs. He's certainly got a defined system and I think he's got a sort of 
youngish, hungry, motivated Scott. So I think he has fostered more of an identity than certainly we had when he started. But I think it's just we we've been terribly unlucky with injuries, which is an excuse to an extent. But we so we started the season with square pegs and round holes, with injuries to key players, with annoying defeats where we shouldn't have lost, with a bad atmosphere. So it's all just kind of conspired into this one sort of horrible thing. Uh, so I think we've got a, a playing style. We've got a defined playing style. What? But what we don't have is the kind of all yeah holistic atmosphere that we had under Pulis, which was like, right, everyone hates us. We're going to be horrible. So let's just be horrible. Uh, let's, you know, launch balls into the box like they're kind of grenades and just <laughs> see what happens. Let's, you know rough these fancy boy Premier League players up and, you know, see if they like it. And then, but because we were so obviously going to do that and there was no expectation on us when we first were in the Premier League, that helped so much because we could immediately get on board with, oh, yeah, we, you know, everyone says we're going to go down. We probably will go down, but let's, you know, bully Arsenal along the way. Whereas now we're in the Championship, we think, hang on, we used to be a Premier League club. Why aren't we you know, challenging for the playoffs, challenging for promotion. And then it becomes a lot harder to kind of foster a kind of atmosphere of, you know, there's there's more expectation and more kind of pressure on the team as a result of that, even though the last four years have proven, you know, we're a mid-table championship club. There's still a kind of residual expectation that we should be up there. We should be winning more games than we lose and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And and just go on, because we've had this experience at Sunderland, but it, from what you described, it does sound pretty toxic. Because if, if you're talking about a last-minute goal where people are actually disappointed because they've got that agenda where they think it'll help get the manager out, and we've been in exactly the same situation where people have wanted a manager out and actually been disappointed if we're suddenly getting a result. Because, you know, if that manager's getting one result in four or something like that, and mm. he's just clinging on to his job, people are thinking, well, you know, if he just... If we if we just lost, it might actually make us kick on. But it's just so such a toxic atmosphere when it gets like that, and we've been there. But I mean, is it really that bad? Is it is it that toxic that people are thinking in that way? I think so. I I know Twitter isn't a barometer, but it seems like the majority of uh, tweets I read that um, they're wanting O'Neill out, and certainly based on the fact they got booed off after a last minute equaliser, that is quite worrying to me. I was at Huddersfield last week got booed off at half time and this I, and I think for a lot of those players particularly the younger players who you know they're, they're starting to break through and whatever they must be a bit baffled by it because they think well we're doing our best and yeah we don't win every week but we're a mid-table championship club what do you expect they don't have our baggage of all the Premier League years and the relegation and so on and so on and I can't imagine that that's going to do much good for the uh, for the players' perception of the fans, and they might start to resent it as well. But it, it it really does seem like like that at the moment. It really does seem like God. Even if we'd got a third and won last night, maybe I think it still could have been a thing. There would still be people saying, "No, I didn't deserve it." Rubbish, all the rest of it. And yeah, they are correct. It was a complete smash and grab equaliser, but. I don't know. I I'm a bit sort of maybe a bit more romantic about football, and I just I'd I'd like to think if I was there, I would have just enjoyed the thrill of a last minute equaliser. But it's not great. It's really not great. 
And just quickly on that Middlesbrough game, because one thing I did notice was when I looked at Dwight Gill, because he was brought off with about 10 minutes left during that game when Stoughton needed a goal, which I thought mm. was a bit weird. But I don't know if he's, I don't know if there's news coming out, whether he's taken a knock or, or whether, you know, you took your main striker off when you needed a goal. Um, I've I've not read anything to suggest it was a knock. It, it might just be that he was kind of blowing a bit. I mean, he's, he's the other side of 30 now. He'd played, I think, most, if not all, of the game against Huddersfield. Um, and he's. I think we're asking him to play a bit more of a sort of... Uh, complete striker role than he has at previous clubs where he might have just been the, the goal poacher in the six-yard box, but we haven't really been able to get him the ball in the six-yard box, which I think has been frustrating for him and us. And so, but we brought on DiMaggio right Phillips, so I think that might just have been a case of uh, Middlesbrough probably just knew how to deal with Dwight Gale, but DiMaggio right Phillips, he's I think 18-19, really tricky, tiny, quick player. That might have just given him something completely different to work out and as it as, as it transpired uh, right Phillips got the uh, got the equalizer so yeah a bit of an interesting one I, I certainly think Gale was maybe an odd signing when we signed him because uh, we don't seem to create that many sort of clear-cut chances for strikers to to finish but yeah I'm I'm just praying that we get some get some time in the 18-yard box with the ball at his feet soon because I think he, he'll get really frustrated if not yeah, yeah, just looking at that Borough game again. I think you mentioned it earlier as well, but it, it looked like a, a three-five-two that uh, Michael O'Neill likes to set his side up with. I mean, you know, if Alex Neil's done his homework, is you know, is that quite a consistent thing? Is that how O'Neill always sets up? And and what what will Alex Neil be kind of thinking if he has done his homework on stock? Um, yeah, so we've played this three at the back system all season and. We've only really changed it up if we've been behind in a game and sort of throwing bodies forward. So what might happen if we're goal or two down with 10, 15 minutes to go is we'll switch that up and go to a 4-3-3, bring an extra striker on. But yeah, it's been kind of his hallmark of the last two seasons now. I think he's even said to sort of meet the manager event crowds and the rest of it that, you know, he thinks this is the best system for this league. He thinks most teams in the league are playing it now. He, he thinks it's the way to go. Uh, issue is, and if I was Alex Neil, then this is where I'd be looking to exploit. Josh Tymon, our kind of best wing-back, he's out for six weeks. Harry Clark, our other wing-back, he's out injured. And what we have is Tariq Fossu, who's more of a winger, and Jordan Thompson, who's more of a centre-mid, playing in those positions. And so we've got sort of square pegs in those key wing-back positions, and that's where... Uh, Sunderland would and should be looking to make the most of it, perhaps even from a defensive point of view as well, if they kind of realise that these guys might not have it altogether in attacking sense from wing back, then, you know, they can just kind of hold firm and, and look to counter us. And I think that our second biggest weakness is in the centre of defence. Connor Taylor's a good defender and Ben Wilmot's a good defender. They're both quite young and up and coming. But we have either Aidan Flint, who is slow old, unreliable, and Phil Jagielka, who was slow, old, and a little bit more reliable, but uh, still, uh, I think, 40 years old now. So a, a lack of pace in that kind of centre of the, the defence, defensive three, is our kind of second weak spot there. So looking at how you guys uh, set up yesterday, uh, I thought I was really impressed with how you guys played 
once you went down to 10 men, or sorry, or rather most of the second half yesterday, I thought Jay Matete, really, really tenacious when he came on, really, really uh, good player, sort of instigated that move that ended in the, uh, was it Lyndon Gooch scored the uh, goal for you? Yeah, oh, yes. uh, instigated Back that move. Um, and I worry about sort of his energy against our midfield, who um, got players like Lewis Baker in there, who's a good player, good pass to the ball, but not the quickest. We haven't got the sort of the quickest, sort of most all action midfield. And um, I thought your wing backs pushed on well when, when needed and you just needed kind of maybe a little bit more quality in the attacking midfield position at times. But yeah, I'm worried. I'm really worried because Sunderland fought really hard with 10 men. We've got injuries. We've got a kind of toxic atmosphere. But I think you will have taken a lot more from your 2-1 defeat than we will our 2-2 last minute equaliser. Yeah. Just out of interest, were you in with the... Were the Sunderland fans behind the goal? Because I was just behind the goal last night. No, um, I went with a Sunderland supporting mate, but uh, we both know a Blades fan as our mutual friend. So we went in the in the cop, which is, you know, a fantastic atmosphere, but the worst on the knees of any football stand I've ever been in. No leg room whatsoever, and you stand you're standing up and down every five minutes as well, which is quite unusual for a home end of a football ground, but. Uh, yeah, good game, good atmosphere. I was a, I was a bit disappointed Sunderland couldn't sneak one because that would have been quite funny. Yeah, well, I wouldn't know about the leg room because we didn't we didn't sit down to the no, of course. <laughs> the, okay. But but uh, but yeah, I mean, looking at Stoke's home form last season, I think it was fifteenth best in the division. I think it was ten wins, eight defeats in the twenty three. But it hasn't been a happy hunting ground for us. Um, won two out of the twelve at Stoke in league competition this century, but. You know the 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 kind of recurring theme through this isn't you know Stoke isn't a particularly happy camp at the moment. So, how are you feeling ahead of the weekend? Um, uh, not great <laughs> to be honest. Especially with uh, those injuries I mentioned as well. I don't think it's gonna be a high scoring game. Uh, like well, I thought perhaps before last night it would have been a high scoring game because. I think the strengths of for both teams perhaps more lie in the attacking players than they do in the defence. But having said that, I think we could be playing a bit more conservatively without without Timon and Clark. And I think, well, I'm hoping more than anything that you guys maybe are a little bit more jaded after having played most of a game with ten men. I I'm not anticipating a classic. I'll be honest with you. I'm I'm going to hope for a Stoke win, but I really can't see it to be honest. Uh, certainly, you know you get you get into that kind of state if you if your club's having a rocky patch where you you can't really see where the next win's coming from. I think it'll probably be a draw, and I think I'll probably take a draw if you offered it me now. Yeah, well, I mean, talking about job affairs, I mean, I was looking last time we met up at the Bet Three Six Five. It was October twenty sixteen in the Premier League. Uh, Mark Hughes and David Moyes were the two managers, <laughs> and a Joe Allen brace. Um, oh blimey! Separate give Stoke a two 0 win. Well, I mean, this one isn't in the Premier League, but I mean, you know, are you expecting a decent crowd on Saturday? I mean, are the fans still turning up? Uh, so we got about nineteen twenty thousand midweek, which is quite a good showing for a midweek. Uh, I, what has kind of impressed me about Stoke is that the crowds have quite have held up quite well, uh, because before we got into the Premier League, our average attendance used to be thirteen, fourteen thousand, and it was really, 
you know, mediocre sort of fan base in that sense, in terms of crowds. But since we've come down, we've managed to stay pretty comfortably over the 20,000, I think maybe even sort of 23,000 uh, we seem to get now, which is uh, quite good. We've we've expanded, we expanded the stadium at exactly the wrong time, I think the season before we went down. <laughs> but I don't know, could be interesting. I, I don't... I don't know how many people are at that jaded point where they're like, oh no, I'm not going anymore uh, because there's not much else to do in Stoke on a Saturday. Um, <laughs> so I, I think we'll be, it'll be around the 20,000 mark. Whether that contributes to a good atmosphere is uh, doubtful. Well, I'm probably similar to, to last night at Bramall Lane where the Sunderland fans heard, you know, I think there'll be a decent following with Sunderland fans. Yeah. Usually is, and everyone likes a Saturday trip out. But uh, are you getting along to the game yourself? Yeah, um, I'm going back to Blackpool to see uh, uh, my parents, and then driving to the game to avoid the train strikes because uh, I usually get to the game by train from where I live now in West Yorkshire. But I've had to kind of work around the uh, the strikes. But my first home game of the season, so uh, fingers crossed that it's just the fact that I wasn't there that's contributed to, to everything, but you never know. <laughs> well, I hope you, hope you have a good day out, you know, barring the result, of course. But thanks for joining us, uh, David, and taking the time out for us. It's been an absolute pleasure, and um, all the best for the season ahead, mate. No worries, pal. Thanks for having us on, and uh, up the Mackhams. Apart from Saturday. Yeah, apart from Saturday. Yeah, nice one. Thanks again, mate. And, and thanks again for everyone listening. Uh, keep a look out at Rook Report for all the build-up ahead of the game against Stoke on Saturday. And keep an eye on all the usual places for the next pod that should be dropping very soon. But from us, bye for now. Being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.